Season four of Formative is brought to you by the generous support of Macy's Inc., whose purpose is to create a brighter future with bold representation for underrepresented youth so we can realize the full potential of every one of us. Welcome to Formative, the show where today's leaders are interviewed by the leaders of tomorrow. David Barkley Moore joins us on today's show. He's an accomplished author who uses reading as a form of listening in order to connect people across the globe. Hello and welcome. I'm Rachel Gazdick, CEO of New York Edge, and my co-host today is Allison from 83X. Hey, good afternoon, Allison. I know you're off to a big cheer meet today, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, hello. My name's Allison. I'm in the eighth grade and I'm 13 years old. I'm the captain of my cheer team. I'm very interested in the arts, especially. I'm very excited to be speaking with today's guest because I've actually read one of his books before. It's awesome. Well, I don't want to wait any longer. I would love the two of you to have a a conversation, and it's my pleasure to welcome David Barkley-Moore. David, thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, no, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. And I want to thank you all for having me at New York Edge and Formative for hosting me today and giving me a chance to talk a little bit and learn more about you all. Well, great. Well, Allison, why don't you take it away? Okay. Could you tell me a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, my middle name means a field of birch trees. I don't know. My mother liked the sound of it, so she you know, gave me that middle name. And I go by David Barclay Moore because there's so many other David Moores out there. I just want to make sure that I stood apart from that. And I'm born and raised in Missouri, uh, just outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Grew up in the suburbs. What was it like growing up there? So I feel very blessed. I think I had a really great upbringing, a pretty traditional family with a mom, dad there, and three older siblings. And the youngest, uh, they nicknamed me Baby Dave, which people still call me Baby Dave, even though I'm like six foot three and 200 pounds, (laughs) very old. So, uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of drama in my family growing up. My upbringing was probably slightly different than at least the characters of my books that I've written. And their lives have kind of a lot of drama in them and a lot of obstacles that they have to kind of overcome, right? I got my degree from Iowa State University. While I was there, I studied at Howard University in Washington, D.C., which is an historically black college, and also at a French university, Université de Montpellier. And after college, I moved to New York City, where I worked in communications and have always written ever since I was your age and, you know, and younger, and made films, documentary films in New York. And I published my first novel, The Stars Beneath Our Feet, about five years ago. And then I published my first picture book, which is called Carry Me Back. It's out of Candlewick Press. And my second novel, Howler of the Fireflies, which is published by Kanaf Random House Children's Books, which my second novel after Stars Beneath Our Feet. I'm Black, obviously. I'm also gay, so I'm a black, gay, creative person living in between Brooklyn and Los Angeles, primarily. Yeah. What would you say to the younger version of you being a member of the LGBTQIA community? Wow, the younger version of me being a young gay Dave, I would have liked to have come out earlier 
you know, I have friends here in New York who are about my age and they came out when they were in high school. At least one of them took another guy to like his prom in high school. I think that would have been like an amazing thing for me to have experienced. I went to my prom, but I took a girl. I would like to take it a guy. So I, that probably would have been just to kind of be braver, younger, you know, would have been my advice to young Dave when it comes to coming out. But it's a very different time, you know, the country and the world being more accepting of queer individuals. We've come a long way just in the past 10 years. So it was a much different period back then. I remember I was talking with a youth group a few years ago about coming out and it was at a youth conference, and so they wanted different kind of queer people to kind of talk about their experiences. And I was one of the people on this panel. And I told them about my coming out experience when I was about 21 years old. And it was funny because the young people who were about your age were just so surprised that I took so long to come out, number one. And number two, that I'd made such a big deal about it back then, because it was a lot of sobbing and crying. And, you know, it was a big dramatic thing and be coming out. And a few of them were just like, well, why didn't you just, you know, be who you were? Why did it have to be such a big production? You know, which, you know, it's a different times. It's a different experience for everybody. What would you say to younger generations of the LGBTQIA communities, such as myself? Well, I guess, I mean, I'm actually very proud of you all and the, what you've done and how you've handled things. Like I said, when I was your age, it weren't as out as all that. Well, most of us were. And so I think that a lot of what I've seen encourages me. There's a lot of uh, kind of not standing for a lot of BS, not putting up with a lot of the same old, I think, with the young people today. And I think that's very encouraging. You know, as far as advice that I would give, I don't know. I mean, I guess keep on doing what you're doing. You know, continue to challenge. Thank you. What inspired you to write The Stars Beneath Our Feet? I mean, there's a lot of different kind of inspirations for the book, a lot. But I had spent a lot of time working with youth, particularly disadvantaged youth in Harlem. And I lived in Harlem for a while. And particularly, I, you know, I taught for a while in Harlem. And then I also worked in communications, which basically means that I've shot video and did kind of internet outreach and photographs for the nonprofit organization called the Harlem Children's Zone. And I did that for a few years and it was a great experience. But having lived in Harlem for a while and then also having worked in Harlem and come into contact with the youth of Harlem, you know, I saw a lot of issues that they were going through that I kind of wanted to address in my novel and hopefully provide some type of help or insight into those problems. Literature, particularly children's literature, is this whole idea of windows and mirrors, right? That's what everybody always says. And so I really wanted the stars beneath our feet to be for a lot of the kind of disadvantaged kids, particularly children of color, to see themselves because we we often don't get to see ourselves like that. More and more we do, but you know, it's not enough. And also for people around the world to understand what we have to go through so that there could be some type of understanding and empathy, which is very important, you know, because I think we need more empathy in the world today. People need to listen to one another and understand what we're going through on all sides. Seeing that you've published a few books, what do you think the key to success is? Oh, wow. That's a hard question. The key to success. Yeah. I don't know if I know the answer to that, actually. I mean, 
in my creative writing, I try to be truthful. What I mean by truthful in creative writing is, you know, I try not to bend the will of all the characters to my perspective and points of view. I think listening is very important and saying other people's perspectives is very important. For instance, in, in Hollow of the Fireflies, there's actually several characters in the book who have a lot of political and social viewpoints that I would probably disagree with. But, you know, I try to inhabit my characters and look at things from a different way, right? So that there can be kind of a true dialogue between different perspectives in the book. I don't know if that equates to success in the kind of colloquial sense of the word, but I think if you create something that you're very proud of and that stands on its own as a work, then that is success, you know, regardless of what the sales are, you know, how many times it gets optioned or whatever. The three books that I've published thus far, very happy with and stand behind. Can you read us a passage that has been relevant to what you've been speaking about? Yeah, sure. I can read an excerpt from chapter 15 of Hollow the Fireflies. There's this whole idea of mirrors and windows and me wanting people to listen to one another more, older people, younger people. And so in Hollow the Fireflies, there are a lot of different types of personalities and people that come together in the novel. Right? The protagonist is a 12-year-old African-American boy. His name is Javari. And he travels from Bushwick, Brooklyn, to a STEM camp in Appalachia, and particularly West Virginia, which is a part of the country that we don't really hear a lot about. There are a lot of positive things about Appalachia and West Virginia. There are some negative things. And there's a pretty diverse culture, diverse group of cultures. And so I'm in a passage in which Javari meets a local boy for the first time whose name is Cricket. And Cricket is a multi-ethnic, multiracial local boy who is basically born and raised in a completely different world than Javar, right? Cricket is from the mountains and rural. Lots of things happen in the novel, but one of the main things is back in Brooklyn, Javari's family is on the verge of being evicted from their home. And so Javari is trying to win a cash prize contest at this camp to help to save his family from getting evicted back in New York. So that's kind of the premise of it. And lots of other things happen. And so... This is the first time that Cricket and Jabari meet. And Jabari's been sneaking around late in the camp because he's been bored. He wants to go out and explore. And he stumbles upon this other boy. And they meet. Chapter 15. Cricket's singing around him. He moved along with a bulky black duffel bag slung around his back. No shoes on his bare feet. And he was strong looking, like he wrestled bearders. One of the first things this cricket had told me was that he was 13, a year older than me. The two of us snuck across the main yard, sticking to the shadows. I squinted at cricket in the dark. I wasn't so sure that he was only 13. He could have been lying. I started to speak, but he shushed me again. He gave me an expression like I was the bonkers one. Maybe I was. Why else would I follow him out of the stairwell, creeping around, the campus at night. We both might have got shot, some cop thinking we're trying to steal something. It was late now. I should have been in bed. I knew I shouldn't be out here following this cricket around. I didn't know anything about him but his name and that he was a black boy with freckles. But these folks around here in West Virginia, I felt, were interesting. 
there was something familiar about how they acted and sounded, but also real different. It was hard for me to solve their equation, which made me curious. Now, cricket made me real curious. Plus, I'd always thought black boys with freckles were cool. I didn't have any. We hid behind a tall tree near the fence. He dropped his bag beside the tree. His duffel looked heavy. After he put on a pair of sneakers, Cricket peeked out from behind the tree, checking for anybody. Elrod's gone, I told him. He passed us. Elrod is the security guard on campus. Cricket nodded. That's my enemy. Me and him. He mashed his two beefy fists together and stared down at my Mets PJs. Cricket says to me, I didn't think they let blacks in their camp. I frowned. You want to Uncle Billy's Negroes? Cricket asked me and giggled. I cursed again and spat. I asked him, what else is in your duffel bag? Cricket stepped in front of it. You the police or something? Cricket, I asked him. I sniffed and spat. What's your real name? You don't go here. I ain't seen you at camp assembly. Holy spit, Cricket said. I wouldn't go to their rock camp if they paid me to. You live around here, I asked Cricket. What's your real name? You know, you ask questions like a sheriff, Cricket told me. Maybe you is one of them. I thought you might be okay, but maybe I was wrong. So that's an excerpt from the time that Javari first meets Cricket in camp. Javari is like a Brooklynite. Cricket is from Appalachia. They're both black, but they obviously are from two different worlds, even though they have something in common, right? And as you see throughout the novel, they start off really rough, but they become very close. And so that's one of the things that like, I had wanted to write this novel, Hollow of the Fireflies, why I wanted to write The Stars Beneath Our Feet, just to kind of help people, young readers, get outside of themselves and see other aspects of the world and other people in the world and try to kind of identify with people that are completely different and listen to them and understand them. Because as I've often said, I think that reading is a form of listening. How did you know that you wanted to be a writer? You know, I always was a storyteller. Back when I was very young, I started off drawing a lot of cartoons and I read a lot of comic books when I was younger, still read some comic books today. And those comics were kind of early stories that I would tell and conjure up, you know. Like if you look at my sketchbooks, over the years, those cartoons bleed over into words and ideas for short stories, ideas for scripts and screenplays and novels, to now when I keep those things, it's pretty much all words for the most part. And I will draw some things just to kind of help me visualize, right? But I always was a storyteller and, you know, whether it be film, photography, creative writing, those are all forms of storytelling. There seems to be a new wave of book banning recently, particularly in the South. What's your favorite banned book and why do you think it's important these books remain accessible? Gosh, yeah, there are quite a bit of them. I'm a big fan of older literature, you know, for the most part. Mark Twain is one of my favorite authors. And years ago, when his novel Huckleberry Finn was first published, it was banned. And we're talking about many years ago. And back then, 
I think Huckleberry Finn was banned. I mean, there's some use of the N-word and a lot of people didn't like that. You know, the language can be kind of rough and vernacular, kind of similar to, actually, my two novels is written in a heavy black vernacular. You know, that a lot of people that rub the wrong way, they wanted novels to sound pretty, pretty prose and stuff. But, you know, one of the things about Huckleberry Finn, which is, I think, one of the greatest kind of anti-slavery works ever written, is that Twain was not using the N-word gratuitously. He was using it to prove a point and to basically display, to shed light on the atrocities of slavery, right? And so back then, a lot of people didn't quite understand that. Also, similarly, years later, with To Kill a Mockingbird, which is another great novel that came out that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way for its kind of very anti-racist, you know, depictions, storytelling. And, you know, The Stars Beneath Our Feet hasn't been a huge target. It has been banned in some areas, but for the most part, it's, it has not. Yeah, probably my favorite one that's contemporary, that's around modern, would probably be New Kid by Jerry Craft. It boggles my mind why anyone would want to ban that book. It's just about a black boy kind of experiencing a transfer to a new school and a lot of the problems that come along with it. Is there anything else you would like to share? I think a common kind of theme, well, there's lots of themes in what I write, but one of the things that's addressed in kind of all three of my books that are published so far, and also in a, another book that's coming out, a picture book that deals with PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress and ways of dealing with that, particularly for Black men and Black boys, most of my stuff deals with kind of mental health issues in a lot of ways. And so, and I know that because of the times that we've been living in, a lot of people have been addressing mental health and have had to struggle with it. And so I just hope for the, particularly the young people that read my work, that they get something out of that, you know, that they kind of normalize getting help for uh, their own kind of mental health in their lives and, and realize that there's no stigma attached to it, particularly in the black community, you know, I think that's very important. And just a lot of the stresses that come about just from the real world and also the social media world, which I know is a huge deal for a lot of young people. A lot of those kind of stressors and mental health issues that can come along with all that, the obsession over that and whatnot. So that's the main thing I think is that reaching out if you feel that you need help, you know, as far as different thoughts that you might have. And just in general, like Lolly and the Stars Beneath Our Feet, he basically goes through therapy in that book with Mr. Ali. You know, he goes to these therapy sessions and he doesn't want to do it at first, but he's kind of forced into it. And at the end of it, he realizes that it was a very healthy thing for him to kind of have to go through. You're going through stuff like that and having thoughts that are making you feel uncomfortable or that are worrying you, to reach out to like a parent, guardian, somebody that you trust and talk with it and reach out and get you know, professional help if that's necessary. I mean, I think everybody should have a therapist, particularly nowadays. I, mean, I look at them as personal trainers for your mind. <laughs> you know, it's just, it helps with your perspectives and keeping things, a healthy kind of outlook on life. Yeah. I also find mental health and therapy very important because if you're not happy, nobody around you is going to be happy. Yeah, totally agree. Speaking about this, when you were at your lowest points, what motivated you to keep going? For the most part, I'm pretty optimistic. 
right? But being an artist and a creative person and a writer, you can go through a lot, you know, a lot of struggles because it's very difficult to work in those fields, you know? So you experience a lot of setbacks and a lot of rejections and a lot of wondering whether or not, you know, you're wasting your time and all this stuff. And so I definitely did feel those, those feelings, right? Those thoughts. For me, I tend not to dwell on them. Like I, I will feel that way maybe for like a day or something. And then I'll go yeah. walk, drink some water and that type of thing. And uh, friends, like a, I think a good group of friends, I've always been very particular about the people that I surround myself with. You can actually kind of take on a lot of their qualities. So I think you should be really careful about you know, who your friends are, you know, and my friends have actually helped. I'm feeling really down. I could reach out to them a period of a few years ago where I particularly had a really rough time. I got gotten dumped and had to move and stuff like that. So put out some therapy, which is very helpful. There's something that's not working right. I tried to break it down and step back and see, okay, this isn't working. What do I need to do to fix it? You know, and then I bounce that off of friends. My parents were definitely mentors, particularly my mother, but I tend to have more cheerleaders and advisors, which I seek out for their advice and who support me, give me the kind of rah-rah thing you can do it type of thing. Thank you for sharing that. So David, thank you so much for being with us today. And Allison was a great co-host. We ask our guests the same question at the end of every episode, knowing what you know now in life, what advice would you give your 13-year-old self? If I were to give advice to my 13-year-old self, I think I would probably tell him to not be afraid. That would be the kind of major advice because looking back in my life, I could see different times, particularly in high school, <laughs> which of course, you know, high school is so notorious for, you know, us being so fearful, and doubtful of ourselves, you know, and it's that transition period. But yeah, there are lots of times back then when I think I held myself back from doing things because I was afraid of appearing stupid or appearing clumsy or appearing not smart enough or being fearful that I would fail. And so I guess my number one piece of advice would have been and also to the young people out there who are 13 right now, it's just, don't be afraid. You got it. Do it. Carry on. Even if you do fail, you'll learn from it. You'll be a better person because of it. Thank you. And thanks for spending your afternoon with us. Oh, yeah. It's my pleasure. Once again, thank you all. It was fun. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Formative, a production of New York Edge. I'm your host, Rachel Gazdick. My co-host today was Allison from 83X in the Bronx. She was assisted by Stephanie. Season four of Formative is brought to you by the generous support of Macy's Inc. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. This episode was produced by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Post-production by Alex Brower. Original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Thanks to the whole team here at New York Edge for making this series possible. Never miss an episode of Formative by subscribing to the series at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.